welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, friend James McGraw. Welcome to the podcast, James. Nice to be here. Um, we're recording this on a beautiful spring Sunday morning. I'm in Salt Lake City, and James is calling in from Bowling Green, Ohio. Is it green as you look outside your house, James? Very much so. It's a beautiful summer day. So it's a great time of year. And um, James, give you an up. This will be a podcast of a couple allies. I'm an ally, as you know. James is an ally. And we'll be talking about James Road as an ally and what he's doing professionally. But as give you an idea of James, he is 27. He is married, has two kids, a boy and a girl, ages four and two. He's a return missionary from the Lansing. Um, the Michigan Lansing Mission Active LDS, and he is a clinical psychology grad student in the middle of a multi-year program in Bowling Green. He got his undergraduate undergraduate degree um, at UVU in Utah County, Utah, and would love to be a professor of psychology someday, and that's going to happen. And his journey as an ally kind of starts with experiences at UVU, and then um, it further develops with a brother that comes out as gay and now continues to develop from an academic standpoint with um, some of the things that he's doing and the longitudinal study that he's launched that we will talk about in this podcast. So um, this will just be a wonderful podcast for those of you that are allies or those of you that are LGBTQ or those of you that just want to better know how to support LGBTQ people as active Latter-day Saints and um, James is walking that road and doing a really good job of it. But um, our job as allies, obviously, is to magnify the voice of LGBTQ people. And I think that's what James wants to do with the work he's doing. Is that okay for a bio, James? Absolutely. Um, and um, talk about, um, here you are, you're 27 years old. Talk about UVU. Tell our listeners what your undergraduate degree was in and then some of the things you do, did at UVU to connect with the LGBTQ space. Yeah, well, thank you again, Richard, for having me on here. I love the work that you do. Um, you know, UVU was, was just really kind of a transformative experience for me. Um, I... Um, didn't do too well in school in high school and so uv was really kind of a wonderful second chance for me and i really felt pretty blessed to have incredible mentors and i was coming uh straight back from an lds mission and i knew i wanted to study psychology and eventually get a phd so i, I felt like i knew exactly what i wanted to do and in the first psychology class that i had was from Dr. Matthew Draper, who's a, a professor of psychology at UVU in their behavioral science department. And that class was just incredible. And uh, for uh, those who know Matt, um, he's a gifted lecturer and really, really helps you understand the nature of psychology and think about it very critically. Um, he's also probably the most compassionate uh, person that I've ever known. So I was really kind of drawn to him. And one day after class, I think I asked him, you know, I'd, I'd love to kind of do some research with you if that's something that you do. And so he invited me to 
be a part of this research lab. And that kind of started everything because, you know, the Matt kind of draws in people from all roads in life. And many, many of my colleagues on Matt's research team and in his lab uh, identified as LGBTQ. Uh, many of them were former Latter-day Saints, uh, some were active Latter-day Saints, anywhere in between, and, and many were were uh, not raised in um, in any particular faith tradition. And it was there that I think and really kind of experienced LGBTQ spaces and learned from LGBTQ experiences. And it had a profound effect on me. I think it, it really broadened my heart, broadened my mind, uh, and challenged me in a lot of important ways. I, I think particularly probably the first time that I uh, entered into an LGBTQ space knowingly was one of my colleagues in Matt's lab uh, is a, is a or I guess back then, you know, was a transgender man. And he was uh, an amazing person and is, and, and he's pursuing graduate education himself in, in, in clinical mental health counseling. And he, um, we were working on a project that had to do with perfectionism among Latter-day Saints. And uh, as I'm sure you know, Richard, you know, that's, that's a big conversation, I think, in, in many mental health uh, areas around perfectionism and Latter-day Saints and um, how to combat uh, the aspects of it. Um, and Danny took me aside, uh, my transgender colleague, and, and asked me, He's not a Latter-day Saint, and he wasn't raised a Latter-day Saint, and he asked me to kind of—he knew I was a return missionary. He asked me to kind of give him some background on Latter-day Saint doctrine and culture so that he would have a better idea about this kind of perfectionism and grace and, and Latter-day Saint uh, research line. And so I did. You know, we sat down. We had a great conversation. And I remember asking him— afterward, you know, well, tell me a little bit about you, you know, are you a person of faith? And, and, and tell me a little bit about your experience. And I'll never forget, Richard, what, what he said. He, he shared, you know, James, I don't know if God exists or if he's there, but if he does, I'm pretty sure he hates me. Wow. Yeah. I, I didn't know what to make of that. And, and, and honestly, I think anyone who would hear that, like me, I mean, my heart was just broken for him. And I think it was one of the first times I realized that, you know, my faith has been, I mean, a real blessing in my life. It certainly has not been without its challenges and, and growth, um, but it has been an immense blessing. And, and I've, I I have never really felt like God hated me ever, and it made me realize, speaking with with my friend uh, and colleague Danny, that um, particularly for LGBTQ folks like him, it religion and faith wasn't always like that. In fact, for him, it was the opposite. He he didn't know if God was there, but you know that that sentiment, that feeling of you know, if he is there, he hates me, you know, that was shocking to me. And it made me realize that I needed to be better, you know, as a person to, 
to communicate, you know, my heart, heartfelt belief that God did love him and loved him for who he was. Um, and so that was one of the, I think, first times I ever really consciously uh, entered into that space. And it was, it was transformative. Yeah, that's a great story. And I love the word you're using, transformative. And I, you know, I, our doctrine is God loves all of his children. And I would assume that Danny, this wonderful transgender man, has heard so many societal messages about people like him or people invoking mm-hmm. God to talk, to infer this is how God feels about LGBTQ people. I assume that part of his journey is, is to internalize some of those societal messages and conclude that's how God feels about him. Um, and, yeah. and so you're, I lo- it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. I, and I, I think that was true for him. You know, he really, there's no doubt that society had sent him those messages and he, he did internalize them. And, and I was wondering like, how, how could you not, you know, when, when so many share that voice, you know, and, and, it was heartbreaking to hear him hear him share that. I love the way you um, he asked about your faith, our faith, and in a genuine desire to understand. And you asked him um, mm-hmm. an, an, op- an open ended question, um, and I think that's great. Um, so you better understand and connect with each other. I think. People generally often want to share what's going on with them with trusted people. So I like you that you asked that question. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, Danny and I became really quite close after that. And I felt like um, I learned so much from interacting with him about LGBTQ spaces and issues. And um, I think it was essential for me to listen i mean i mean it sounds simple but but just listen to him and gave him space to speak and it really was transformative when he spoke and it made me think deeply about uh myself and my own beliefs and and how i uh treated lgbtq people in the past and, and how i wanted to treat them in the future and and in the present um, keep yeah, keep telling stories from UVU, more stories. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, you know, being a part of Math Lab, you know, I interacted with a number of LGBTQ folks, and uh, you know, one of our closest friends, uh, actually the the godmother of our daughter, uh, her name is uh, is Liz, um, and she's non-binary, and she's amazing. And she has, uh, uh, her pronouns are, are she or they. And, um, you know, she she really kind of took me under her wing. And, and, and it was one of the first times, I think, that I realized that, um, you know, she's a former member. We actually grew up in the same ward. And, and uh, she's several years older than I am. And so we never interacted until UVU. But we came to this conclusion that, you know, kind of jokingly, that we probably wouldn't have been friends uh, if we had known one another, you know, five years previous meeting. And uh, we both were kind of entering into these spaces, you know, me entering into more LGBTQ spaces and and her navigating um, 
faith in a way that that was no longer, uh, I think, um, harming her at every at every uh, glance. And I think we both grew as individuals there, and and really kind of grew to respect and and um, love one another in, in important ways. I think Matt's lab um, just, I mean, it was just kind of a hodgepodge of so many uh, different people of color, uh, people people of different faith traditions, no faith tradition, uh, people of different sexual orientations and gender identities. And I think it was a really wonderfully safe space where all of us felt like we could be open and honest and, and trust that everyone would take care of one another. Um, that kind of that kind of perspective, I think, kind of fueled uh, in me an, a natural desire to advocate for for the underserved and underrepresented. Uh, um, my senior year at UVU, I actually applied for a, a position as part of their presidential internship program, which is kind of a where one student gets hired to work directly with one of the vice presidents or the president of the university or, or cabinet members. Um, and so I interviewed and I was hired by Dr. Kyle Reyes, who at the time was the uh, assistant to the president for inclusion and diversity issues. Uh, and he and I worked together on a number of projects and he really mentored me in, in, in kind of, entering spaces of, of diversity and inclusion in general, uh, not just sexual orientation and gender diversity, although that was certainly uh, many of the things that we did, but also um, advocating for people of color, uh, for veterans, for women, for um, those who uh, have disabilities. Um, and that was, again, another transformative experience. I had the opportunity to work with Karen Deicher there, who was at the time the director of LGBT Student Services, worked with her on some of the things with the transgender task force to make the university more uh, open and um, inclusive and affirming of transgender and non-conforming, uh, gender non-conforming faculty, staff, and students. Um, I worked with her quite a bit on a number of projects related to LDS and LGBTQ issues. She really became a, a, a great resource for me in, in kind of making sure that I entered LGBTQ spaces appropriately um, and in ways that would be positive. And I think in general, UVU, just at least from my perspective, and I, and I, I understand, you know, I'm a white uh hetero LDS man, but it, it, it did seem like UVU was really making efforts to be inclusive, and that certainly rubbed off on me in trying to become an advocate for, for those whose voices often are silenced or judged or dismissed. Um, UVU was just an incredible place to practice diversity and, and, and really kind of get, get better at it as a white ally. Talk about um, life on this transgender task force. What kind of things is UVU doing? What are the, some of the issues they face if they're trying to um, make the university work better for transgender students? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, it's been a couple of years now since I've been in there, but one of the things, and really Karen Deicher was the mastermind 
behind this. But one of the things that the task force was really trying to do were, you know, making sure that there were gender inclusive bathrooms and spaces for uh, transgender and gender nonconforming folks to occupy. Things that may seem simple to others, but that, you know, in a, in a really conservative community like Utah County, you know, it, was, it wasn't always on the forefront of many people's minds. So things like having options for faculty, staff, and students to be able to um, share the name that they desire to be called rather than their birth name. Um, things like that, that were really Karen Deicher pushing to uh, help, help the university adopt some of these easy kind of practices to make it more inclusive. And in general, I really felt like, and, and, and she would obviously be able to speak more to it than I can, but in general, I think the, the university really, really trying to do those things. And there were certainly, I think, always going to be pushed back in, in conservative communities like that to some degree. But in general, I think Karen uh, and others taught me through the trans transgender task force and other kind of uh, challenges with multicultural uh, student services and things like that. But there are a lot of low-hanging fruit, if you will, of things that regardless of where you are ideologically, I think most people would be able to feel good about. And that has really kind of informed a lot of my allyship, particularly with working with active members of the church, is I think that there are a lot of really easy kind of low-hanging fruit things to make um, wards and congregations much, much more inclusive to LGBTQ folks that you wouldn't necessarily have to have a, um, a real uh, you know, faith crisis to, to think about uh, think about adopting. Any examples of those, James? Yeah. So, you know, recently, you know, before COVID nineteen, um, I was asked by our by my state presidency to speak about ministering, and I asked them if I could speak about ministering to LGBTQ saints, um, and they were very open to that. So, one of the things that I I think is important for LGBTQ allies in the church is just to be deliberate. Just ask those questions. Can I speak about this? Um, I think instead of waiting to get that assignment, just being upfront and, and kind of advocating for it. But some of the things that I shared with the um, stake leadership that I think were low-hanging fruit is one was just share God's love with LGBTQ saints. You know, I kind of shared with them the, that story about about Danny and how I think a lot of members of the church feel compelled whenever um, LD, uh, LGBTQ issues come up, they feel like they need to talk about the law of chastity. And I don't want to dismiss um, LDS folks uh, feeling that that's important to them. It certainly is. Um, but, you know, I don't think it needs to be said by most of us to our LGBTQ saints and loved ones. Uh, the thing that I shared with them is that I don't think that there's anyone who knows more about the law of chastity than LGBTQ saints. They probably have thought about it much, much more than we have. And I don't think that they need a, a constant reminder from their ministering brothers or sisters about those things. Um, instead, what I told them was uh, share God's love for them. 
know, you don't have to come in and talk about the family proclamation all the time. You can simply tell them that God loves them and, and loves them for who they are. And you don't even have to kind of broach the issue of the law of chastity, right? You can you can save that for other folks that 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 uh, may play a different role than they do. Um, other things that I shared with them were like let them serve in the church. I think we've all um, heard kind of horror stories of LGBTQ saints who are, you know, living, uh, you know, trying their hardest to keep the covenants that they've made. And leaders not being understanding of that and being skeptical and doubting LGBTQ saints um, before they've even had an opportunity to to prove themselves. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I shared with these leaders that that's really, you know, low-hanging fruit. Just let them serve. Give them callings and give them, you know, important callings and let them serve because they have gifts that um, heterosexual members of the church really need to partake of. You know, they, they really have perspectives that they need to hear. The other things that I felt like were, were important, too, were, you know, helping uh, them draw closer to God and Christ. You know, I think oftentimes we spend so much time talking about um, issues like repentance that we, we, we forget to just check in with how LGBTQ Latter-day Saints overall spirituality is. You know, how, you know, are they feeling like God answers their prayers? Uh, do they feel like... Uh, they receive revelation? Do they feel like they can turn to God um, and and feel his feel his love and, and comfort? You know, those are things that I think are essential for uh, for a person's spirituality. That I think LGBTQ Latter Day Saints don't often hear those messages, but those are things that I we could absolutely begin sharing right away. I love that. Um... How was all that received in your stake? Well, I'll be honest, Richard. I was very nervous about giving that talk. It was at a recent leadership meeting, and so basically the crowd was, you know, what you would expect from a high council in Utah, you know, older white men, their gray hairs. And, I, you know, I'm that, that was intimidating, I think, because I think we have thoughts about what that, what men like that may think. I was very, very surprised because uh, I had many uh, of those leaders come up to me and ask me to come and speak to their wards or their their branches because they had LGBTQ folks in their congregations that they felt like needed to hear these messages of hope. And they had members of those wards that are straight that they felt like needed to hear that message of inclusion. And that I had branch presidents and bishops come up to me and, and, and share that with me, and that, that gave me a lot of hope. I think the other thing that really struck me was at the end of the meeting, you know, the stake presidents typically speak, you know, they kind of give the closing remarks. And I was very, very thankful and and very impressed because the stake president actually stood up, and I actually sent him my remarks you know, about a week in advance, just just because I wanted to, you know, make sure that they were comfortable with what I was going to say. And he shared with the congregation that not not only did he read it beforehand, but he felt the spirit beforehand bear witness that what what said was true and right, and that he approved of the message and that we needed to do better. And that, I mean, that was pretty amazing. And I think that a lot of leaders 
in the church could follow that example. You know, when LGBTQ issues are brought up and we share these messages of being affirming and serving with love and kindness and understanding, to have a leader like the stake president say, yes, I explicitly approve of this message, really sends a strong message to members of their stake and their wards and, and branches that, oh, it's okay to be an ally like this. And I think that that can help people who may feel uh, straight members who may feel a little bit hesitant to when you hear your state president say, yeah, go do this. You know, that that's a pretty um, that's a pretty disarming type of thing. That's cool. Um, that's really cool. And you're right. That's just teaching the doctrine of Christ. And I think our members are yearning. Um, for a little bit of air cover from our local leaders to be able to talk about this. And I, I think in that situation, the stake president, because it's if it's rarely or never talked about LGBTQ and you just gave that talk, I think it's cool that your stake president actually talked about your talk because mm -hmm. I think every it's such a new topic. I think everybody then is glancing at the presiding leader and wondering what he is thinking yeah. And if it's a talk about a typical subject that are important, it usually doesn't need the stick president's approval. But this one, I like the way he um, gave that approval. And then that really opened the door. It reminds me of a story in this book I'm writing, James, about a stick president was had a gay member of the stake. And the stick president kind of felt like this wasn't an issue that affected the stake. And stick president finally got prodded along enough that he asked he asked the members of the stake in a state conference, I think a Saturday night, says, will all of you raise your hand if you have a family member or friend that's LGBTQ? And most hands went up. And I think what it was just, he kind of that night, according to the gay member, he gave permission for the state whole stake to talk about that when they all raised their hand. And then his comments just saying, this is an issue that does affect all of us. Um, mm. And we need to talk about it. So yeah, I love that. And I love one of the things you said about going back to UVU and that um, that safe place. And you talked about the culture of that safe place so everybody could be honest. But then you said something I wrote down word for word. It allowed us to take care of one another. And I thought of this simple formula, and I thought of our elders' quorums and our Relief Society and our young men's and young women's, that that's the goal of those organizations yeah. is to be able to take care of one another. But sometimes the culture doesn't create a safe place that people can talk about what's really going on in their lives, how they really feel. If they have an honest question about the church, um, we kind of culturally we've created what I call sometimes, and I don't want to be too critical here, the best answer club where we yeah. kind of come to core meeting and, we queue up a talk and the guys that kind of shine are the ones that have the best answers. And they're often really a wonderful answers and we need those, yeah. but we also need a way that people have questions can feel safe. Cause then we have a lot of people that I think we don't minister to because we don't know where they are. And then we can't do what you just said. We can't take care of one another. But if you have a stake president and you that's talking about LGBTQ, then I think we increase the likelihood we can take care of one another, even in issues that aren't LGBTQ related, because we create a culture and a stake or award 
where, okay, if our word's talking about this and we're talking in kind ways, then people like me, you know, have a space in this ward or this stake or this branch. And um, I can be more open. And certainly one of the things um, that I would assume has happened with you and the stake president is you both have become safer. So people mm-hmm. know they can, okay, I can talk to James or I can talk to the stake president about stuff in my life because of that kind of message he is sending. So I love that. Um, yeah. Very helpful. Um, any, yeah, I, go ahead. I really, I really resonate with what you said, Richard, because I, I feel like um, in many ways, those allies may feel hesitant to speak up, to um, just ask um, these, these kind of subtle and quiet uh, points of advocacy, like just asking a stake president if I can speak about this issue. That moves, that, that really does move the needle a little bit. And um, like you said, oftentimes we, we kind of, uh, I think we grew up in that culture, like you said, the best answers where we, we often ignore problems because they're really uncomfortable and they really are, I think, I think probably not just uncomfortable, they're also really hard to talk about. Um, many of the Latter-day Saints that I interact with, they really want to know how to help LGBTQ folks. They just have no idea how. Um, and they want to make sure that they do it in a way that you know, other members aren't going to judge them. They want to do it, you know, in a doctrinally safe way, I, I think is how they might say it. Um, and so just by being vocal, just by, by saying those little things, it really kind of, like you said, gives permission to talk about them and helps us train ourselves how to speak about it in ways that are really helpful. I think that for many issues, you know, faith crises, LGBTQ issues, race, obviously right now, um, and has been kind of on the forefront of our minds, we've, we've done a good job about uh, ignoring it and ignoring those conversations. And what that I think has unfortunately done is uh, um, we're, we're, we're a little behind in knowing how to speak about it and maybe not as literate as we could be in, in speaking about it. And so just by speaking up, we, we can learn how to do that better. I agree. Um, really agree with everything you've said. And when I talk to younger people like you, you're 32 years younger than me, James. It just gives me hope for the future. As And so I look at sometimes we have this narrative the world is going in the wrong direction and tie LGBTQ into that. Mm. And I it's not that binary, <laughs> as you know, no, and many not. of the listeners know. In fact, that when I... Um, recognize that as I, we do better as a society, as our culture, when we include LGBTQ people and help them to feel fully worthy and loved and needed members of our community. And so I look at some elements of our world are going in the wrong direction, sex trafficking, ISIS, um, polarization of political issues, but other areas, other areas of society, I think are moving in a better direction. We're learning to have conversations about complex things, like you say, and look inward and sort of say, what do I need to do better? Am I part of the problem? And how, once I recognize I might be a part of the problem, what can I do better, especially with LGBTQ and develop the tools and the vocabulary and the skill 
to not add to someone's burden, but actually lift their burden. And, um, and so it gives me hope for the future. Talk about, I want to talk about your brother and I want to talk about anything more at UVU. Where do you want, you can just decide where to go next. Um, yeah, no, I think we can talk about my brother. Um, you know, uh, I love my brother. I mean, it's just that simple. Um, I think that, uh, so I was, I felt very grateful, um, because Leanne and I, my, my partner, she and I have always been kind of, uh, uh, wanting to do better and, and, and wanting to advocate for those, uh, who are struggling and those who need it. And, you know, both of her and I have entered LGBTQ spaces, uh, many times before my brother came out. Um, and in many ways, you know, my parents were very, very, um, just kind of generally loving and, and, you know, we were very, very close as a family and still are. And so when my brother came out, um, I was very, very grateful that I had learned those things because I was able to look back and say, oh my goodness, I am so grateful that I did not say X, Y, Z, you know, about LGBTQ folks in front of my brother ever. And I'm so grateful that I had had these experiences with other LGBTQ folks because I felt like I was able to respond in a way that made him feel comfortable and that he could talk to us. Um, my brother, I think, really struggled uh, uh, quite quite a bit. And, and um, I remember, uh, so he's, he's a little shorter than I am. I'm, I'm 6'1", and he's around 5'6". I've, I'm sure he would say, no, James, I'm 5'7". Um, so I remember a time when I was, you know, getting off my mission, and, and my brother was really going through an interesting faith crisis, and it had to, re- it was regarding his height. And he would, um, you know, he would share with me how frustrated he was because he was shorter, and he would pray and pray and pray and fast and fast and fast about being short and wanting to be tall. In fact, one time he wrote to President Monson, I believe, and shared, you know, why, why isn't God listening to me? Why won't he make me um, tall? Um, you know, and he got a, a nice message from President Monson. But it wasn't until um, my brother came out that I think I realized that I don't think he was praying about his height. I think he was praying about his sexuality and who he was. Um, it was something that he, you know, early on certainly did not feel comfortable with and really hated himself about. Um, and I don't think you can, again, you know, similar to, to Danny, I don't think when you are holding in your arms your brother who is in tears, he's wanting to take his own life, um, because of this, I don't know how you can have any other reaction but compassion. And I, and I understand that many people do not have that reaction. Um, and I want to, you know, recognize that. For me, however, it was just the natural reaction was to love him more. 
And in many ways, uh, I think that um, the reaction of our family, my, my mother and my father, my, my wife, um, we all loved him. My, our extended family were very, very loving. You know, um, he, he's not the first uh, person in our extended family to come out as, come out as gay or um, LGBTQ+. And in many real ways, I think that our family's reaction saved his life. Um, and I, I don't think I'm being melodramatic there. I think that he was in a dark place. He did not like who he was. And he, he did not want that part of himself. And he wanted to take his own life. And I think when we reacted with love, I think he realized that he could love himself. And that, 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 again, that was another transformative experience, I think, for us. Uh, certainly coming out as transformative for uh, LGBTQ folks. But it, it taught me just a very practical lesson, and that is uh, many LGBTQ folks are feeling like they are in dark places. And when they come out, they desperately want love from us and when we give them the love that they deserve and that they need it can save their life you know um that that that's special and i'm i'm really grateful that we were able to have that experience because i know so many lgbtq folks do not have that experience that they they have the opposite. They have a, an often many times abusive reactions, but, uh, you know, we were able to act in love. And I, I think that really was a pretty tremendous blessing for us and for my brother. I love that segment, James. Um, if your brother's listening to this, I love you and I love the good man that you are and the contributions you have to your family. And, um, and the beauty of your family, what a needed member of the family and community you are. And you said some things that sort of brought tears to my eyes. Um, I wrote some of them down. I love my brother. It's just that simple. What a powerful, simple statement. It's, you know, we complicate things sometimes. And I'm yeah. thinking here, you know, you you just said that at 27, but people are wired to love. Everybody at age four or five, six or seven would say the same thing about everybody, um, yeah. regardless of, you know, race, sex, um, sexual or gender ad orientation or gender identity. And I love where you've just kept that with you because I think that's the way God created us. And, and then I love what you also said. I love him even more as you start to understand his road because our hearts enlarge um, because of natural built-in compassion, I guess, and our baptism covenants, when we better understand the cross that other people bear. And if they're allowed to share that cross and let us into their journey and we're open to learn the nature and depth of their pain, then we love people more and our hearts swell and we yeah. recognize the brutal road they're walking. And I love that you're aware of your brother's emotional health and recognize that be, that he may not be here if it wasn't for your family and your mother, Meg and I, I've, have traded mm. messages over the years. I'm reckoning, yeah. you know, and 
I recognize what a wonderful mother and father you have and what a family. Um, but I love what you also said, James, that you said, as we love him, he realized that he can better love himself. And how true and simple and powerful is that? That if yeah. people like your transgender friend feel unlovable, but we show love to them, you know, it's part, and society does that, and church does that, then they start to feel people like me um, are feel love, I can love me. And and it increases the likelihood they'll connect with God and yeah. openness that God loves somebody like me um, that's gay and five foot four or whatever height. And this is yeah. actually how God wants me to be. And who I am is part of the plan for me. And I'm not a mistake. And God isn't up there going, oh, no, what went wrong? You know, yeah. he's gay or not six foot four. Um, but it's actually how someone is meant to be created. Now, it doesn't take agency off the table, but it puts everybody on the same moral footing um, as equal children, all alike unto God, as equal children of heavenly parents. Um, but some have much more difficult roads than others. So I yeah. love I love whatever you've just spoken to thousands of LGBTQ people when you talked about your love for your brother. Um, and thank you for doing that. Of course, I, 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 I do love him. And he and I are really quite close. And it's certainly, I mean, like you said, you know, I, I, I don't want to suggest too, you know, it, it certainly hasn't been all cupcakes and rainbows too. You know what I mean? Uh, I think we, like every family, we have our challenges and, and, and even about these issues. But like you said, uh, love is not one of the challenges. You know, I mean, that that part of it is never off the table. That one is always there. That's the constant. In fact, that, that is the table, right, that we that we sit at is, is this table of love and admiration. And I do. I, I love and I, I admire my brother. And I'm so grateful that he is who he is because I'm better for it, too. I love... Just that segment, James. Um, love is something that's in our control. Um, it mm. seems like, you know, when you walk looking to make family strong and congregation strong, yeah, there's going to be, it doesn't mean, you know, it's not a simple straight line all the time, but love is something that's in our control to freely yeah. give to others unconditionally. And it's doctrinally founded. Um, and taught in the New Testament, as, as you and I and our listeners know. And I look at the mission of Christ, and just he, he did that over and over and over again in dramatic cultural sort of um, eyebrow-raising, eye, eye if that's the right term, um, ways to help people reconsider what they thought was appropriate and how to love. And, mm. and so, and I... I sometimes think we build these false dichotomies in our brain that to fully love and follow God, we have to stop loving some of his children. And I think that's just a false dichotomy. I think to fully and love and follow God, we love, you know, everybody, including the least of these. That's the way we show God our love. And yeah. sometimes we've built sort of boundaries and certainly around LGBTQ for Active Latter-day Saints, that's been tricky. Um, but I think yeah. we're learning how to do that and better. Um, 
a story comes to mind of a a, young, a man teaching deacon's quorum, married man, gay, and his wife is straight, and he came out to the bishop. And the bishop's first impression was, well, now I need to release him from being um, the deacon's quorum instructor. And then in... Mm. And then this is back to your point maybe 20 minutes ago about serving in the church. The bishop, and I wrote this in the book that's coming out in September, said, in one of the most direct spiritual impressions I've got, I was told ne- not to release him from being the deacon's quorum instructor. And that that didn't change anything about who he is or if his effectiveness to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ to that group. And it was his own, probably like mine, internalized homophobia that thought that, okay, this is what we do now. We, you know, we move people out of leadership callings or assignments with the youth or um, if they identify as LGBTQ. But, though, you know, I just think we're learning that and to be open to the spirit and not bring our, perhaps our biases that may mute the spirit, helping us know what the right thing to do is. And I love that story. Um, yeah. Yeah, just... You, I want to make sure in this last segment that we get to your work at Bowling Green. But do you want to talk sure. anything more about your family or your brother before we shift there? Well, I, I think I think just one thing, and and, and that is um, similar to kind of what you were saying, Richard. The the impression that I get from Christ, and I think this is this is supported by Scripture, is that. The more and more that Christ learns about us, the more compassion he has for us, right? I mean, the Garden of Gethsemane, I mean, taking upon himself all that we are, all of our struggles, all of our pain, uh, and all of our mistakes, his natural reaction to doing that is to be filled with mercy and love and compassion. And... I think that's what we got to shoot for. You know, too often when it, I think it comes with LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, um, like like the story you just shared, um, you know, when when members of the church find out that someone is identified as LGBTQ, they're gaining more information, more knowledge of that person, but their reaction is not compassion. It's not mercy. It's judgment. It's It's doubting them. And it just it may, it reminds me of that uh, talk by uh, Elder M. Russell Ballard that he gave about faith crises, and he challenged people not to doubt people who have doubts. And I love that, and I think it's similar in this context. Please, we have to be better about not doubting our LGBTQ loved ones. They are amazing people. They have gifts. They're they're part of the body of Christ. And we can't say that we don't have need of the part of the body of Christ they play. Um, they they have a role to play in God's kingdom, and I think I am really looking forward to seeing that role and and being blessed by the role that they play. I love that, and it, you were just on. Such similar journeys, James. It's fascinating to me. And as I talk to allies, and I, I sort of went through a period of time that I was the big, um, the what's I've forgotten the name of it, the Good Samaritan. I was the guy doing all yeah. the saving. Um, and certainly there's been a little bit of that as an ally, but I recognize that LGBTQ people are saving me. 
and helping yeah. me become the disciple of Christ God wants me to be. And I need LGBTQ people in my life because the things they can teach me and the better man and better human I'm becoming. And that yeah. has been transforming for me. And I recognize where if that's possible for me and for you and many others, then we're missing something in our congregations where um, we just need to do better. I call it a 40-chapter book. We have more chapters to write to help LGBTQ people feel welcome, included, and needed in our congregations. Mm -hmm. And I don't sit on the general councils of the church. I don't know Heavenly Father's will, but I just recognize we're not at chapter 40 of this 40-chapter yeah. book, and we just have more work to do. And, and I recognize because we're not at chapter 40, often LGBTQ people are not having the same balm of Gilead experience that straight people are at church. And so that's our loss. And it's also, we are adding at times through perhaps things we don't fully understand to the load of LGBTQ people. So I've certainly recognized why some step away um, and leave our faith. And I've just my heart breaks when anybody steps away, but I also just believe in this beautiful plan of salvation, loving heavenly parents that I'll leave it at the Savior's feet. And my love for someone doesn't change. They don't become the poster boy for how to do LDS and LGBTQ one day and the villain the next day. They're the same person. And yeah. if they choose a path that's outside of our church, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't invite them to choose a path outside of our church, but if they self-determine and feel that that's their path. I just, I'm going to leave that at the Savior's feet. I'm not in charge of judging anybody and I will do the best I can to continue to love them. Cause I think as they feel my love for them and my support, I think they're more likely to make thoughtful decisions and less likely to get angry <laughs> at people yeah, that sure. sort of point to them and say, well, now you're the, you know, and just sort of create these narratives around um, people that perhaps step away or, so any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, um, you know, that, that's been my impression too. You know, so often we have uh, straight members of the church, I think like I shared earlier, who feel compelled to bring up the law of chastity, for instance, whenever this topic comes up. And the thing that, that I think that we should be sharing is how to get revelation. When I, if, if someone who is LGBTQ comes to me and is asking these questions or is, or is con, uh, um, confiding in me, I want to make sure that they are feeling connected with their Heavenly Father because there's no one who will know them and their situation better than He. And so I want to send the right message. I don't feel necessarily compelled to bring out my family proclamation the world because I would rather share with them, how are your prayers going? You know, are, are you feeling like you're you're hearing from Heavenly Father? Uh, no, I'm not. Man, I'm so sorry to hear that. That has got to be even more tough and challenging to go through this and not feel like you have His support. What can I do to help you feel like you're getting answers? Um, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's, um, I think what I can do that I think I think they're better served for me to help them connect with God, regardless of their decisions down the road in their relation with the church. If they're able to connect with God, I know He can speak to them. 
them in ways that I will never be able to speak or know that they need. I'm with you on that, James. And I just, I recognize that I'm a marketing guy and we do aided, unaided awareness sometimes. And I think, <laughs> you know, and so I recognize somebody coming out, there's a, a link that's been created culturally that we remind them of the proclamation, the family or the law of chastity is sort of our unaided response. And I think I agree with you that often my LGBTQ friends are walking in, are walking encyclopedias on the doctrine of our church around the law of chastity and the proclamation of family. And I support the proclamation of family and the teachings of the church, but I, I recognize that it's for some LGBTQ, especially if we're asking them to stay celibate um, and never have a partner their whole life, the proclamation can be triggering for them because they just don't see how their life plan fits into that, even if they're staying in the church their whole life. And so I think we have to recognize that lots of active Latter-day Saints don't fit in the proclamation on the family. And, and that, makes them perhaps feel like second-class citizens. So I think it's part of creating safe places so we can fully take care of one another and understand how people that may not fit into every box within the church, we need to be especially sensitive to them. And and I, yeah, I, I agree that when I, I was just, I think when we see a single straight person walk into church, we don't think, are they living the law of chastity? Um, <laughs> yeah. We just see them as a fellow member of our congregation. But when we sometimes see a single gay person walk in, I hope we don't wonder more about are they keeping the law of chastity than a single straight person. It, that's just not where our mind should go because it prevents us from meeting their needs. And it's not right. our business. Now, a local leader has an equal responsibility to all members in a temple recommend um, or to, you know, to assess where they are extending a, a calling, but even those relationships, I don't think need to be fi- defined solely by, are you keeping the commandments or not? It's, it's those relationships need to be defined by helping them come into Christ and understanding where they are and creating a safe place. They can talk about what's going on in their life. So I really agree with what you say. Oh yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think that, um, you know, uh, one of the most influential talks that have really helped me is from President Oaks a while ago. He has this talk called uh, Judging and and Judgment, I think. And he talks about how to make righteous judgment. And one of the criteria he gives is that in order to give righteous judgment, the person has to be in their stewardship. And so one of the things that, I, I mean, members of the church that I think can just like relax and realize that, you know, like sharing uh, the law of chastity or the family proclamation to gay Latter-day Saints or other LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, uh, that's, that's outside their stewardship, right? Like, like, like that's, they don't have to do that. Like they, they can be free to love because the people whose stewardship that might be are very few, right? That's your people with keys, Right, like your bishop or stake president. They now, I don't know how they, you know, can navigate these spaces. You know, I think that's a very challenging position to be in. But, but lay Latter Day Saints, they, 
that doesn't even have to be on their their radar. They can be free from making those judgments. They don't need to feel compelled to even bring it up because it's just simply not in their stewardship if you take what President Oaks said seriously. That's a great segment. And I love your use of the word free there, James, because then I'm free. You know, I'm a secretary in our elders quorum presidency is my calling, and I'm, I have no keys. Um, and in a way, that's freeing. So I don't have to go down any of these roads of trying to assess. I sometimes say my covenant keeping, to keep my covenants isn't, one of my covenants is not to assess if other people are keeping their covenants. Right, um, right. And how fr- freeing is that so that I can fully um, try to help, love, and support other people? Um, and in the back of my mind, I probably recognize as I do that better, it's more likely that they'll make better choices, keep their covenants, um, stay close with God as they feel this unconditional love. Um, condone is a word that is a tricky, sticky word, because, you know, when someone says, well, I'm not going to go to a gay wedding or I'm not going to like a Facebook post of two people, I've that's been a tricky sp- place. Any thoughts just for active Latter-day Saints that say, you know, I want to love people, but I'm not going to go to their gay wedding or um, I'm not going to like that Facebook post of two guys that just got engaged or say a kind comment. Um just any thoughts about how you're personally navigating that space? Yeah, that's a great question. I agree with you that 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 term condone is just kind of fraught in our culture, isn't it? I mean, it's just, I think that is one of the biggest stumbling blocks for um, heterosexual Latter-day Saints in supporting LGBTQ folks is that, that worry about condoning. Um. And you know what? I, I I get that. I think I think that is born out of a sincere desire to do to do right by what they think God expects of them. So, so I I get that. I think for me, I I am trying to live my life. Gosh, I can't. Is it Elder? I think it was President Benson, but I'm sure one of the listeners will. will who's a better scriptorian than I am will, will be able to correct me. But I do remember it was a president of the church talking of two bishops about judgment and how to navigate some of the tricky spaces that they, that a bishop naturally will have to. And I remember this, this phrase, and he, he would say, when making judgment, always err on the side of mercy. And I, I think I have just tried to live my life in that kind of space where, okay, if if push comes to shove and, and Heavenly Father is displeased with me for attending and, and, and celebrating my um, LGBTQ family members or loved ones' weddings, um, okay, I, I will own that. But I'm I'm going to err on the side of mercy there. I'm going to err on the side of being loving and compassionate rather than erring on being too judgmental. And that's just much, much more comfortable for me because I think, again, it it gets to that freeing. I don't have to make judgments. That's not the role that I play. The role that I play as a disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who mourns with those that mourn, who celebrates with those that celebrate 
And that's certainly tricky. I mean, it's certainly not black and white. I think it's it's certainly uh, much more complex for a lot of active Latter-day Saints. For me, it just comes down to I'm, I'm going to love and be compassionate and err on the side of mercy and not feel like I have to even talk about condoning or anything like that. You know, it, it does seem odd to me. I don't know if you have felt like this, Richard, but uh, I have never felt like with a straight friend that if I love them and hang out with them, that I am um, condoning or supporting things that they do that I might find problematic or I, I might wonder about. It's never a question um, for me when it comes to straight friends. And, and I almost do wonder if that highlights a, a level of uh, homophobia or, or, or implicit bias for, uh, against our LGBTQ loved ones. And I don't think we ever talk about it in any other space but LGBTQ. And, and that's just not fair. You know, it's not consistent. I agree with that. I, I'm with you, and I just think that's an area in this 40-chapter book and in the work you're doing that will continue to make progress. Um, and I think the doctrine of love is the—I sort of come back to what is the doctrine um, that allows good decisions to be made. And to me, it's the doctrine of love. It's the doctrine that I don't judge. It's the doctrine of that then would want me to support people in— you know, in what they feel is the best path for them. And yeah. <clears throat> one of the mothers of an LDS son, an LGBTQ LDS son in this book that I'm coming out, she she had an interesting take. She said, you know, would we go to um, a Catholic mass, if invited, to witness the baptism of one of our friend's infant son? And would we even post on Facebook that that's what we're doing or share a picture and worry that we're doing something that we would get in trouble with from our fellow Latter-day Saints? And I think most Latter-day Saints would do that if a trusted friend or even a family member that was Catholic invited them to the... But we know in the Book of Mormon how we feel about infant baptism. That's, yeah, right. <laughs> um, there's some pretty strong language about that, but we would still go to support that family in a time um, of family unity and family celebration. And so I think I'd invite listeners that are looking for a framework to listen to James's words and the words of that LDS mom and um, try to f use Christ's example to love and support. And, and to do that, I don't think it's back to this false dichotomy that we're, if we love people too much, you know, don't get too close to them. You can be say kind things, but if you get too close, you're crossing a line in the church or you're supporting them too much. And I just think, you know, that line doesn't exist. Um, I don't think we can love people too much and support them as they make their way forward. Uh, there's exceptions to that. I kind of joke about ISIS sometimes that they probably do want to bomb me. And, you know, so there's boundaries of, of groups that want to take away my agency or take away my freedoms. And, some listeners may even say LGBTQ people want to do that, but most most people that I know in gay marriages just want me to support them the way they same way they're supporting me in my straight marriage. They don't they just look at it as equal marriages. One's outside the doctrine of our church and one isn't, but legally they're both the same and and so they just want sort of the equal support and not point to them as what's wrong with society. So that's 
complicated space, as you know well. And for listeners, you don't have to agree with everything I say on this. Um, You may find different boundaries than I do. And I think my goal of this podcast is not to have everybody come to the same uniform beliefs on everything on this space. And that's the same goal with the book I'm writing. But to have thoughtful discussions with people like James that are doing their very best to try to navigate this space so we can do better. Um, President um, Ballard asked us to do better at BYU when he says we have to do better than we've done in the past so that all LGBTQ feel like they have a spiritual home. So that's a charge from Elder Ballard that um, allies are trying to do, and um, but we'll all do that a little differently. And so I've talked more than I like to talk because I like my guests to talk, but <laughs> but talk about your study um, that you're doing that's part it's part of your graduate work, maybe part of your dissertation thesis, but it's a kind of part of what you're doing. Yeah, no, and I, I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk about it. So um, one of the first projects that I kind of took, so, uh, my advisor at Bowling Green State University, is, her name is Annette Mahoney, and she is a past president of APA Division 36, which is the president, uh, or which is the psychology for the study of uh, psychology of religion and spirituality. She is uh, just an incredible scholar when it comes to religion, spirituality, and, and particularly family dynamics when it comes to religion and spirituality. And um, one of the first projects that I did related to LDS LGBTQ things in academia was actually to do what is called a systematic or narrative review of all the published and unpublished literature that had looked at LDS LGBTQ uh, family or mental health. And that right now, that article that we have that we prepared um, is currently under review for peer review, and um, we hope that it can make a good contribution, that it is something that kind of synthesizes all the research out there to kind of be a, a resource for clinicians and advocacy groups, uh, church leaders to kind of better understand some of the unique challenges that LDS and current and former LDS LGBTQ folks face. One of the things that we realized as we looked at all the literature is not just what was there, but what wasn't. And we realized that actually, uh, despite a, a great deal of kind of conversation about it, very little has been published quantitatively about interactions LG, LDS, LGBTQ folks have with their parents or family members regarding religion, spirituality, and their sexuality. And that was really quite surprising. Now, there certainly are a, a couple of publications that have talked about that, uh, but nothing really in-depth, and, and, and um, a lot of it has been qualitative for, for those who may not necessarily know the difference there. So qualitative research typically re uh, relies on interviews, uh, very similar to this podcast, where you go in-depth with one person. Um, and the strength of qualitative interviews is that they give you a, a very kind of deep and rich um, uh, set of information. The challenge is with qualitative is that because it's so deep and rich, you typically can't collect a lot of interviews from a lot of different people. So you may have a small sample. 
And that makes it very hard to kind of generalize if the experiences shared also generalize to other or most LDS, LGBTQ folks. So what we typically do is quantify and use more surveys to kind of, we don't go as deep, we kind of go an inch deep, but you go very, a mile long. You know, we try to get as many folks as we can and ask them about these experiences. So one of the, the current study that we're doing right now really revolves around family dynamics for current and former LDS, LGBTQ folks. We are very interested in knowing how uh, parents and family members uh, use religion in speaking with their LD, uh, their LGBTQ children for better or for worse. You know, things like helping uh, invite them to pray and find solace in God or things that are, are much, much more kind of concerning, such as saying that, that God hates them or um, dislikes them because of their sexual orientation or attraction. So we're really interested in kind of teasing apart what experiences are LDS, LGBTQ folks having with their parents when it comes to religion and spirituality and their sexuality? And then how do those things relate to um, a person's mental health? Um, there's a lot of research out there that, that shows that the more accepting and affirming parents are of their LGBTQ children, the better off uh, their mental health is. Um, and if they're rejecting, you know, how off it is. And so we really want to kind of uh, look at that within this LDS, LGBTQ context and see if that's true for uh, our loved ones as well. Um, we want to see ways in which religion and spirituality are positive for them. Uh, I think that's, that's one thing that the research has tended to focus on is that uh, faith is a negative thing all the time for LGBTQ folks. And while it certainly certainly can be damaging and traumatic uh, for them. Many LGBTQ folks also experience a great deal of um, passion and, and, and wonderful feelings and healing feelings about faith and spirituality. And so we, we, we want to be able to present both of those, the ways that uh, religion and spirituality within a family and for, for people personally can be both protective and per potentially also uh, be a risk factor for uh, negative mental health outcomes like depression or, or feeling suicidal. Um, another kind of major component of the study is that it's longitudinal. Um, so every single study that has been published right now on LDS LGBTQ issues has been what we call cross-sectional. And what that typically means, and this is very common in research, and basically, you send out a survey at one time period and you just kind of get a, a glimpse of, of what things are. But the challenge is, is we, it's really difficult to talk about causality in these cases. Uh, you know, the, the adage correlation does not equal causation there. Um, and so what longitudinal research does is allows us to collect information about these things from these LDS, LGBTQ folks over a short amount of time for over four months and see how these experiences might be stable across a short amount of time or how they might be dynamic and varying and how experiences earlier may affect experiences later on. 
So for instance, you know, something we really want to be able to look at is if um, an LDS LGBTQ Latter-day Saint experiences positive or negative family interactions um, early on, if that may serve or predict negative outcomes later on, right? Those are all things that longitudinal research can do. And it would really be a boost in kind of it's kind of the next step in LDS LGBTQ research. We've done a lot of cross-sectional work, and now it's time to kind of move forward and try to do some longitudinal work to see how these things might change or stay stable over time. Um, that's more comprehensive than I realized. I know we've talked about this, and you've posted on social media, but that's helpful for just me personally to recognize the the broad nature and it makes it's more it makes me um more excited want more people to engage if tell our listeners if who should and who would you like to enroll in this and how they would do that certainly so anyone who has been a member of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints and who currently identifies as lgbq or who are same sex or same gender attracted um, should participate. Um, most of the um, things that we're looking at have to do with sexual orientation or attractions. So um, folks who are transgender or gender nonconforming should certainly still participate. Um, it's just that the questions we will be asking are actually about sexual orientation and attractions. There will be a study kind of forthcoming about gender identity and experiences like that specifically. But I think it's, it's important in research particularly to be sensitive to the fact that gender identity and sexual orientation are, are not the same. They should be conflated together. And so we decided for this first project, we would just kind of uh, focus on sexual orientation attraction uh, experiences. So if you are uh, 18 years or older, uh, if you are current or former LDS and identify as LGBTQ or same-sex, same-gender attracted, uh, certainly please consider taking the survey. Um, we are lucky. So the way it will work is you'll take the initial survey. It takes about 30 minutes um, on average. And then at the end of this survey, you'll be given the option to share with us your email address through Qualtrics. And if you do that, then... In one month, and then two months, and then three months, you'll receive a similar survey asking follow-up questions, and then you'll be done. So it'll be a, the longitudinal study takes over the next four months from when you take the first survey, one month later, two months later, and three months, and then you're done. Um, again, that information, like your email address, is confidential. We're not sharing it with anybody. Um but this will allow us to kind of follow over time how these experiences, like I shared, stay the same or maybe change in important ways. And how would people contact you? That's a great question. So, or do they? Is there a website they can go to, or they email you, or find you on Facebook? Yeah, certainly. So, I've been posting the um, survey online on Facebook particularly quite a bit. If you are on Facebook, you can go to a Facebook page. It's called current slash former LDS identifying as LGBTQ or experiencing same-sex attraction. It has a, a picture of uh, Bowling Green State University icon, and you should be able to find the 
um, link to the survey on there. Or you can go to Mormons Building Bridges or a number of groups for affirmation on Facebook that the, the survey is frequently posted there. And if you have questions or maybe maybe want to reach out to me personally, you can always message me on Facebook. My name is James McGraw. Or you can reach out to my um, email address, which is jsmcgra at bgsu.edu. And you can reach out to me over email and be able to you know ask me any questions or comments or concerns. Or uh, if you have trouble accessing the survey, you know I can I can set that up for you. And will you give out that website address one more time again? Absolutely. So it's the Facebook page, and it's called Current Slash Former LDS Identifying as LGBTQ or Experiencing Same-Sex Attraction. Um, again, you know, I know I'm a I'm a budding academic, so I don't really have a a, a super sexy title That's okay. uh, for the Facebook page. Uh, but it, it, you can find it there, and, and and on there it does have a little bit more information about the types of questions we'll ask if that's something that you're concerned about. Um, and also, I should mention one other thing, Richard, is that um, for those that take all four waves, you actually qualify to enter into a raffle to to win one of fifteen hundred dollar Amazon gift cards. Um, so that's that, that's a little bit of incentive to kind of complete all four waves, if you will. Will you talk about why you want, or maybe it doesn't care, but you've been clear you'd, it doesn't matter if you're current LDS and active or, or you're former LDS. Just, I assume, do you, is that part of the research to try to see if there's a difference there, or are you just trying to get it perspectives across the whole spectrum? Well, I think, I think it's both, Richard. I think that... Um, a lot of L, uh, LGBTQ folks who were raised LDS or, or converted to LDS um, have left the faith tradition uh, related to a lot of the, the issues with LGBTQ uh, things. And so part of it is to capture as diverse a sample as possible, uh, a sample full of folks who identify as same-sex attracted or who are active LDS and those who are formerly LDS and identify as LGBTQ or anywhere in between. Um, it's to get as diverse a sample as possible because a lot of times um, these voices aren't always in the same place. So a lot of previous research, particularly early on when looking at this, has tended to kind of um, rely on one or the other, either kind of a more active sample or, or a, a more former sample. And what I'm trying to do, and, and other researchers like uh, Tyler LaFerver that are trying to do is, is really try to get a more diverse sample that um, kind of shares the diversity of the journeys that people are on in regards to these issues so that we can kind of see um, how this might generalize to all current or former LDS LGBTQ folks. Another reason, too, is that it is an important difference to kind of look at. Um, you know, one of the things that research shows, for instance, among this group is that um, that former LDS LGBTQ folks tend to experience less uh, family support than their active LDS counterparts. Um and that has obviously, you know, kind of detrimental effects on mental health. 
However, they also tend to experience less internalized homophobia. Whereas active Latter-day Saint LGBTQ folks may experience more family support, but they may experience more internalized homophobia too. And so there are sometimes some really important differences between the two groups that may contribute to mental health challenges in different ways. So your um, former LDS LGBTQ folks may experience some mental health challenges because of um, lack of family support, whereas your current LDS LGBTQ folks may be experiencing mental health challenges because of internalized homophobia. So it, it's just important to kind of see the differences there because sometimes the pathways to good and bad outcomes are importantly nuanced um, and importantly different. I love that. I love the scope of what you're doing and the assumptions and getting wanting to get more data from people in this group. Um, and I think it's part of your life mission, James. I would think when you're 59, <laughs> um, I, you know, what you're doing right now and these experiences um, in the academic world, your professional world, in your ministering level world, in your own family, in your faith community, which is part of your life mission. Um, mm. And I, I look forward to the future um, with all the wonderful people I'm meeting. And I don't want to just say younger people are more thoughtful on this issue, but there's clearly um, a, just an awakening or a better set of tools or a better set of seeing that's helping us improve as a body of Christ. Any final thoughts you'd love to live, leave with our listeners? Yeah, I think... I think one thing that I would share is just, I know it's important for current and former LDS LGBTQ folks to feel like their voice is not going to be used in a way that um, um, kind of fits, fits, fits an agenda or, or fits a, a um, sentiment that they may not feel comfortable with. And I think it is, um, one thing that I would like to just assure uh, listeners, and particularly uh, LGBTQ saints interested in this study, is that what I'm trying to do with this research is um, help solve the problems that we're all facing with this issue. And I want to just share the voices that I that I um, find in the study. I'm not trying to push an agenda other than um, really trying to help uh, current and former LDS LGBTQ folks um, in mental health and, and, and hopefully, you know, navigate mental health issues and challenges in ways that are important for them to, to live healthy and wonderful lives. Um, for me, I kind of take the approach that uh, whatever the data finds, the data finds, you know, and, and better data, better research helps all of us. Um, solve problems better. And so I, I'm, I'm really, you know, hopeful that uh, current and former LDS LGBTQ folks will take the survey and, and share their voices and perspectives so that we can help uh, solve many of the challenges and have a better idea of what they are um, than maybe we have in the past. I love that. Um, well, um, 
we're going to end this podcast. It could keep going, James, but uh, I personally really enjoyed our visit and um, the road that you've taken through UVU, um, sitting with people, listening, your own brother, your own family, and the academic work and the future professional career you'll have. It's a really unique. Your wife's with you walking the same road. It's just a you. It just gives me hope, and I'm so honored to have you on the podcast and grateful that more people connect with your work, and it's needed work. And I think science is our friend and research is our friend to help us um, better understand and then be able to better minister. I love, here I'm talking too much, but I kind of like the parable of the, the lost sheep. And I don't want to imply LGBT could be the lost sheep, but sometimes when someone leaves the fold, um, the shepherd knew the lost sheep well enough to know where I'm using male pronoun, where he went and why he left. And he was able to find him. And so I think that's a principle of wanting to understand everybody we have stewardship responsibility for well enough to know if someone's left, why they left and where they are and being willing to hear that story. Cause then I think we're better able to create safe places and, or we can take care of one another. So I love research um, that I think it helps us make more informed decisions and better understand. So it's our friend, um, especially the way you're approaching it, where you're not trying to, you're not looking for a correlated narrative. You're looking for let the facts take me where they're going to take me so I can better meet the needs and understand this group. So um, we'll sign off. Thank you on behalf of James McGraw. And Richard Osler, this is another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.